Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Homecoming, a podcast that features the diverse stories, insights, and experiences of Asians, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders. I'm your host, Angel Rena. I hope all of you are holding up and doing okay out there. I know for a lot of the students, school is either over, hooray for summer, or you're in full-on finals mode, which in that case, good luck with all of your final exams and projects. So for the episode today, I wanted to bring on a couple of people whom I really look up to, and these two people have played very big roles in my Yale experience, and they're not only my bosses, but also my role models. Everyone, today on the podcast, I've brought Dean Joliana Yi, the director, and Shiraz Iqbal, the assistant director of the Yale Asian American Cultural Center. Dean Yi and Shiraz, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you both doing? Doing great. And thanks so much for inviting me to be a part of this. Of course. And Shiraz, what about you? Yeah, I'd say I'm doing pretty well. Trying to stay busy, uh, picking up on old hobbies, which has been really nice to do again. Oh, which old hobbies have you picked up again? Oh, man, what haven't I? Uh, let's see. <laughs> I used to be really into fitness um, a few years ago, and it's been nice to have consistency with that. And so every morning at around 9 a.m., I get up, um, even on Saturday and Sunday, to do um, my workouts, which is uh, insanity. Um, So I do that to wake me up, and that's kind of like my morning coffee. So that's been really nice. And then I'm into video games, too, and I've been a real big fan of Animal Crossing. And I think that's been the biggest hype (laughs) for, uh, for a lot of people, so... Oh, yeah. I know a whole lot of my friends have been playing a lot of Animal Crossing during this quarantine, so... You're not alone, Shiraz. Um, So before I get into any of the questions that I prepared, do you both want to first introduce yourselves? And please feel free to go into as much detail as you would like. Um, You can explain where you were born, where you grew up, what your childhood was like, and the events that led up to you working at the Asian American Cultural Center. So Shiraz, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, Shiraz, I uh, use he, him pronouns, and uh, I was born in Pakistan, um, and my family moved us to the United States in 1990, so when I was just a baby, and it's, uh, in my family, it's me, um, four siblings, uh, so I'm, the, I'm one of five, and my parents yeah, we grew up in Long Island, New York, um, hopped around a few houses, but then we settled into a house um, when I was three and stayed there for the extended period of my childhood growing up. And that was fun, um, having <laughs> five siblings and sharing rooms with a few. And experiencing that was definitely a great um, opportunity to learn to share rooms and uh, you know, um, you know, get people to play with and things like that. Um, and I should also mention that I have a, a twin as well, and uh, uh, he he lives in Queens now. But um, yeah, so we were in the same grade growing up, and different classes, but um, you know, always together. And my mom always tried to keep us together and do things together. So it was kind of a interesting experience having that growing up. Wow, wait, that's crazy! I never knew you had a twin. Is that a common? Is that a commonly known fact about you, Shiraz? I, I, you know, I just, if people ask, then I definitely tell. And if they don't, then I'm like, oh, it's a good surprise, I guess. So sorry for not sharing earlier. 
No, no, no need to apologize. I'm just so excited that we're already getting this new information on the podcast. Um, sorry for interrupting. Do you want to continue with how you got to the AACC? Yeah, I think uh, my life journey kind of leads into the current position I'm in. Um, and I think that continues to shape, um, you know, the current position I'm in continues to shape where I may end up next. Um, but not anytime soon for, for that, just get that disclaimer, but just to say that the experiences that I've gotten have definitely led to new experiences that I've wanted to pursue. Um, and I think knowing the background helps a little bit. Um, so for me, um, I was a first generation uh, low income college student. So experiencing both of those um, facets of my life definitely gave me a different perspective than. Uh, some of my peers uh, in undergrad. And that in and of itself made me want to do things um, in terms of on-campus employment and things like in, uh, that I was involved with. Uh, it, it shaped uh, and influenced those things. So, you know, for my undergrad, I, I you know, I went into college. Uh, I went to college in Ithaca College, uh, upstate New York. And you know, I left, uh, and my mom and, you know, my parents were very adamant of, you can get any degree here and, you know, you can be a doctor and you can do it right here, right in our backyard in Long Island at Stony Brook or something. And I was like, yeah, that's true. So then part of me was like, in my mind, I was like, yeah, she's not lying. But I was like, I could also bend the truth a little to get myself to leave because I did want to have a little bit of space and um, freedom uh, to uh, be independent and explore and uh, different things like that. So, you know, I pretty much said that there was a really good program in Ithaca that doesn't, isn't often in, in Stony Brook. And that wasn't true at all, but um, it, it, it made it easier to, uh, for her to let go and for me to leave. Um, I only lasted like a semester in med, in pre-med, and then I switched. Um, she never knew that. Um, I don't know if she still knows that, but whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I decided to go to, uh, you know, I was like, okay, maybe I'll try exercise science because I love athletics and maybe that's a good hybrid of like my interest in athletics and also making my parents happy and being in medicine. That only lasted two weeks. And then I went to the career services center and I said, hey, I need to take a career assessment and just figure out what my major should be. And I took these random questions and they they kind of uh, outputted three results, three majors careers I could pursue. Um, each kind of were interesting and different. So the first one was engineering. Uh, and I was like, that'd be really cool. But the caveat was that I would have to switch schools because I think I didn't have an engineering program. And I was like, ah, I don't want to go through that now. So I, I, that was off the list then. The second one was um, uh, teaching. And so I was like, oh, okay, I'm really good at math. Maybe I could be a math teacher. And I like working with students because um, I love doing that and, you know, mentoring and different things in high school. So that could be a good possibility. And then the last one, I, I swear I could have remembered, but I think it was like potato farmer. And I was like, well, it's a different approach. Um, but I don't know how, how, you know, how the economy is doing or whatever I was thinking at the time. So I was like, maybe not that one. So I decided to pursue uh, education and uh, declared as a math education um, uh, math education major. And so while all that was happening, I decided to switch. I mean, I decided to, I was continuing to work on campus. And so at the end of my first year, after all that was happening, I decided to become an orientation leader. And that summer I worked on, on campus and helped students transition into, and that was such a 
great experience at like seeing people like helping families, helping parents navigate college life, first gen students um, and little things like that. And so then I became an RA, a resident assistant. And that was like my interest continued because of the, you know, the orientation experience. And ever since that, I just continued doing on-campus jobs that weren't like, you know, I did the dining hall experience too, and I worked there, but most of them were generic, were generally like student affairs uh, in that office. So like, you know, student organizations, multicultural affairs, et cetera, et cetera. So little did I know that that was shaping my experience for the, what the future was going to be. And um, while that was happening, I was continuing in math. But I think the turning point was when my uh, hall director, my supervisor, when I was an RA said, you know, you're really good at being an RA. And I'm not trying to toot my horn. He, this is literally what he said. And, um, you know, I, I think you would be really good in this career. And so I was like, well, okay, um, you could work you can be an RA full time and get paid to do this. He's like, well, not an RA, but like a hall director. Yeah. And I was like, where do I sign? Like, can I do this now? He's like, well, you got to finish your degree and you can do any degree you want. You just have to, you know, then pursue a master's degree and all those things. Uh, and so then I knew no matter what ended up happening with my major, I knew that higher education, I think this was in my sophomore year, the higher education was going to be my, my career. So I finished out undergrad um, as a math major, I dropped the education piece because I knew I was just going to finish focus on higher ed. And uh, I went to New Hampshire and worked there for three years. Um, and the reason why is because I thought I was going to go to grad school, but, um, you know, it was just, I, you know, I, this is, again, continuous. This is like building up that my first gen low income experience um, influenced me not to go into education because, A, I didn't have any connections and anyone to tell me like, hey, you know, you can get a graduate assistantship and get your college paid for. Um, and I didn't know that at the time. And so I was like, well, I don't want to pay for education again. I don't want to take out more loans and all that. And so I decided to work full time in New Hampshire. And I thought that was going to be a one year gig. And I ended up doing it for three years because um, I just wanted to, I had such a great experience. Little did I know I'd live in the middle of nowhere and have such a great experience because I came from Long Island. You know, I was very busy there. And, um, you know, I, I left, a, I definitely think I, I, I left a great uh legacy there and you know just like the students that I met and they left a great impression for me and just so much uh, um, experience that they gave me too and then I decided to you know I, my life I realized was going no, more and more colder so like Long Island and then Ithaca was like a 10 degree drop and then New Hampshire was another 15 degree drop in average temperature I was like this is getting insane so I should probably move somewhere warmer so I decided to go to grad school at the University of Florida uh, so I was a gator for two years and I pursued the higher education program there and um that office, actually, I worked in um, the first gen office. And so that was a great experience to give me a different perspective of like what student affairs really is, because it's such an umbrella group organization, uh, like a uh, career, you know, having all these uh, multifaceted uh, offices and things like that. So I worked in first gen and got to work with first gen students doing so many cool initiatives. Um, but then I was like, you know, while I'm here, it's only two years, I should make the most of my time. So I decided to work in their leadership office uh, for a practicum that I was doing for hours. And then I also did voluntary because Florida was like, you can't get paid for anything else you do. You can only get paid for a certain amount. I was like, okay, I'll just do a voluntary. And I decided to work in the Asian Pacific Islander American Affairs office, APIA office. Voluntary is like an assessment person there. And that, that pretty much led my experience to think like my next career was going to be in either first gen or um, like uh, multicultural affairs. Um, or, if, uh, you know, hybrid of both, or if it's like an office, like, I don't know, resident life, because um, that's where I was in New Hampshire, as long as I get to do diversity work or social justice work there. So that's what I was really looking for. And so um, I when I when I saw these different jobs, I applied, and I interviewed and 
Um, you know, Yale came at a unique time because I was in a unique situation where I had an offer, but then Yale, like I saw the posting of Yale. So I was like, do I accept this offer or do I take the, you know, I, I asked Yale for, you know, and I apply. And so Yale said, Hey, we'd love to have you come and interview you. <clears throat> and I had to also make a decision at the same time with this other place I was applying to. So then this is kind of one of those things that I just kind of like threw everything on the table and I was like, you know what, let's just go for Yale. Cause I really feel more connected there. Um, just from what I read from the job description and I just declined the other offer. And then I just decided to apply and, you know, uh, I guess, uh, wish for the best. And, uh, fortunately for me, yeah, it, it worked out really well that I, I applied and interviewed and met some really great people and, um, got the offer. And so, uh, that's when I started in July of 2017 and, uh, <laughs> I've been there since. Wow. Awesome. Shiraz. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And Dean Yi, do you want to introduce yourself as well? And again, feel free to go into as much detail as you want. Yeah. Um, where do I start? Um, I think most importantly, I always go back to where I was born and raised, um, which is Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Um, there's a saying you can, you know, take the Malaysian out of Malaysia, but you can't take Malaysia out of the Malaysian. So um, I know that I will forever be um, Malaysian at heart, um, even though I've spent a majority of my adult life in the U.S. now. Um, I was born to Lili Puan Franco Yi, um, my parents, in 1987. I'm giving away my age. Totally fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, in in June, so I'm a summer baby. And um, I grew up there with, as the youngest of three siblings. I have two older sisters who I, who I really love de- dearly. Um, and we actually all live in different parts of the world now, um, but remain closely knit. And I think growing up in a family, a Christian household, um, really shaped a lot of my identity. And growing up amongst, you know, women who look like me and who were very strong and unique in their own um, rights, right? Like n- neither of us are the same in any way, even though we all grew up in the same household, I think really gave me the space to flourish into my own um, being and, you know, bless my dad of being the only man in the house full of women. Um, He definitely took it in stride and he never once, you know, told us that we couldn't do something because of our gender. And I think that that was critical, right? Coming from, I would say the first man that I ever loved in my life is my dad. Um, and being able to hear, you know, um, the ways in which he affirmed all of us and uh, really allowed us to kind of come into our own. Um, yeah, I grew up going to public school. Um, I'm first generation in terms of um, being a college student. Um, I'm the first in my family to study in the United States. Um, I'm the first in my family to hold a master's degree and most recently a doctoral degree. Um, And I think all these firsts also shape um, a lot of how I move through the world. Um, I came to the United States when I was 19 um, to pursue my undergraduate degree. Um, And the reason why I came to the U.S. was because growing up in Malaysia, I'm ethnically Chinese. Um, we're an ethnic minority within our country. So it, 
um, Islam is the official um, religion of Malaysia, and then Malays are the dominant uh, ethnicity or ethnic group within Malaysia. And so, as as much as I love a lot of of what Malaysia has given me and what it is about, um, and I still represent it really hard. Um, I think there are a lot of problematic ways in which um, racial discrimination has been institutionalized in Malaysia. Um, and while that has not um, stopped, you know, myself obviously from still achieving things, I think it has limited the opportunities um, for ethnic Chinese and you know anyone who's is not Malay um, in ways that are less than ideal. And so the reason why um, my myself and my sisters actually all went abroad for our um, degrees was because um, of the racial quotas um, that our public universities enforce <clears throat> in Malaysia. And so as a result of, of years of um, racial quotas, I would say that the standard of higher education has actually declined. Um, and Funny enough, we talk about racial quotas when in the U.S., right, like there's this whole affirmative action law suit that's happening. And I think people tend to think that an affirmative action in the U.S. is like racial quotas, but they're actually not at all the same thing. Um, so that could be a whole other episode. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, the realities of higher education um, and the barriers of that for someone like myself, who's ethnically Chinese, pushed my parents to really save and squirrel away all the money that they earned um, to essentially send us abroad so that we could have an education that would allow us to have some options after graduation. Um, and so, you know, having never gone anywhere beyond high school, both my parents being the eldest in their families had to actually go to work really early in their lives. Um, to support their younger siblings. And so they ensured that, A, we um, learned how to speak English, uh, which I think is interesting given that, you know, we grew up in, in a country that spoke Malay predominantly. Um, and then, B, they, they wanted to ensure that we all had an education abroad that would open up more opportunities for us. And so, you know, it came with a lot of sacrifice on their part. Um, but, you know, I think that's where I kind of fell into higher education and seeing it as kind of a career. Um, I did my undergraduate studies at Miami University in, in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, not Florida, <laughs> not Miami Beach, mm -hmm. as a lot of people thought I was going to Miami to party. Um, I was in the middle of the cornfields, not in, on the beach. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a amazing <clears throat> undergraduate experience there. Um, but everyone always asks, like, how did you end up there? You know, like, why middle of nowhere, Ohio? And <laughs> it really came down to um, cost, <laughs> right? Like I said, my parents really just worked um, and set aside money for us. But we didn't have an endless amount of funds for me to go and just go to whatever university I wanted to. Um, at that, And at the time, um, when I came to the U.S., I would say that um, most schools were still not very um, cognizant of like international students. <clears throat> a lot of U.S. In, um, colleges and universities were still very focused on like recruiting U.S.-based 
um, students and international students were just starting to really come into Miami University and so or into the U.S. <clears throat> and so Miami was actually one of the few or one of the only one that actually um, provided me a need-based scholarship, um, whereas all the other institutions were like, oh, we only do that for local um, U.S. citizens. And so that actually became a major driver cost. Um, but I also obviously like really appreciated the liberal arts um, education that Miami provided. Um, and it, it's a beautiful rural campus. And in my parents' mind, r- the more rural, the better, because then I wouldn't be out there partying <laughs> and spending money. Um, but I think it just gave them a, more of a peace of mind knowing that I wouldn't be in like a major city. Um, so that's how I ended up there. Um, but that really, and my involvement um, as a resident assistant, um, similar to what Shiraz mentioned, um, and you know, my involvement on campus as a student leader um, actually made me aware of this possibility of working at a university, but not necessarily as a professor, right? Because I think my idea of like working in a university was only as a professor or as a lecturer. Um, and I wasn't really aware of like the administrators who ran a university and made things happen other than the president. But, you know, I also thought that they had to be faculty. Um, and so I think that's where my journey to 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 the ACC really began, even though I didn't know that um, back then over a decade ago. Um, but it was through that. Um, and I was a double major in poli science economics. So. I was really kind of set on the path of going into something business related, Um, you know, got to please the parents. And I still remember that the most terrifying conversation that I had with my parents was to ask them for permission to go to graduate school (laughs) um, to pursue a degree in higher education because I thought they would be so disappointed in me. Um, because, you know, like what education, um, they never encouraged me ever or any of us to go into education just because they never thought of it as as, as a lucrative or stable career. Um, but, you know, they surprised me. And at the end of the day, they said, you can pursue whatever you you want. And if you really think you want to do this, then that's fine. We'll support you as long as you can, like, still put food and on the table and feed yourself. Like, we're fine with that. And you're not like, you know, dropping out of school or anything. Um, but I think that moment, I still vividly remember it, like bawling at the idea of having to tell my parents and to quote unquote, like disappoint them um, was probably one of the really formative points in my life um, where I felt like I was really making a decision for me and not just something to please my parents. But at the same time, I had to deal with this idea of parental expectation, right? Um, and I think that's something that's pretty universal for a lot of our community because we know how much our parents have sacrificed um, to get us where we are. So um, I made the decision to, you know, to be the first in my family to pursue a master's. And I had no idea what that even meant um, other than I had to, you know, write an essay and, you know, the same thing that you kind of did for undergraduate um, college applications. And, you know, I I had preview days and I, you know, interviewed with the faculty, which was super scary because I'm like, what am I doing here? I am not that smart. Um, You know, who am I and why should I get a master's? And a lot of questions came up as a first generation college student about like, what does it mean to be a master degree holder? And like, how do I even navigate 
you know, this space. Um, but I had a wonderful experience at Indiana University. Um, I chose that program because of the faculty and the strong, like, academic focus that it had, um, while also providing um, paraprofessional experience. Um, so while I was um, working on my master's, I was also a, a graduate, like, um, supervisor within the residential college system or their version of the residential college system um, and you know I worked in a in a community that housed close to 2,000 students one of the largest buildings on campus um, and it you know really gave me life to be able to tr kind of translate what I was learning in the classroom right into the work that I'm doing and kind of vice versa um, and I think that led me to really see the the importance of not just admitting students of a diverse background, but really creating environments um, that allow them to thrive, right? Like, <clears throat> just because you admit a student doesn't mean that they will have the same experience. Um, and, and that's not the end not solely an individual problem like you know you don't just tell someone like well you just need to do things differently sure there is probably some individual responsibility that needs to be taken when it comes to how you experience your college but then there are also other institutionalized things that need to be done in order to make certain opportunities open and accessible to as many people as possible and so i think that's where you know i really started like honing and um <clears throat> i guess yeah, sharpening my like perspective on what it meant to really um, push for equity and access within higher education spaces, um, you know, and given how much, you know, like between my generation and my parents' generation, like how much education and having a degree has, has changed like my opportunities, I, I obviously saw education as a really important tool um, for empowering like communities. Uh, to empower themselves right and to open up possibilities for their own communities um, and so it was obviously th there that I really committed myself to a career in higher education and not just a job because um, I think you know having a job and having a title is, is one thing <clears throat> but having a career where you feel like there's a calling and you know a greater purpose than just what you do on a day-to-day -day basis um, is something I'm. I think I'm really blessed to have found so young in my life. Um, I know a lot of people don't have the privilege of being in a job where they feel fulfilled. Um, and so, from Indiana, I you know like graduated with my master's and then like moved to Connecticut, um, not New Haven, but I actually moved like two hours, about two hours north of um, New Haven to Stores, Connecticut, where I worked at University of Connecticut for a couple of years, also in their residential kind of system. And um, I like did a lot of amazing things, met a lot of amazing people. Um, and it really was my first time in a position where I worked very closely with the cultural centers um, on our campus. So University of Connecticut, similar to Yale also, has a cultural center, uh, like a you know, a cultural center for each group, um, and they also have a rainbow center um, and whatnot. And so, in my role as a residential kind of like college dean equivalent, I really worked closely with those centers to 
to really think about how can I make my residential space where students come and live and, you know, sleep and hang out and eat um, more inclusive, um, like actively more inclusive, not just say that we're inclusive, but like doing things that actually made the environment more inclusive. Um, and I, it was there that I really understood and, you know, be, was able to see firsthand the the kind of impact and I guess contributions that cultural centers make on a college campus um, and and you know their directors and and staff in those spaces really became some of my closest colleagues to this day. I look up to them a lot um, because I you know I think seeing the work that they do not just within their institution but kind of you know across the country um, and they're obviously like they've done it for a lot longer as well so I constantly look to them um, as like confidants and and just kind of mentors as well um, as we're all doing this work together and I actually left my position at the University of Connecticut um, to pursue my doctoral um, degree in Chicago and so while I was doing that um, I got kind of a call from um, folks at Yale saying that they were looking for someone to fill the position and that my name had been recommended. Um, And so I think, you know, to cut a long story short, what really kind of hooked me was the history of Yale's Asian American Cultural Center. Um, I think that the amount of influence that alumni, I mean, former students and now alumni um, of Yale and and the impact that they have had on on Asia America is a lot farther and deeper than most people know. Um, and I felt really fortunate to have the opportunity to be a part of that in some shape or form. Um, and I really hope to continue to amplify that um, in my role and with the ACC turning 40 in 2021. Um, I'm really excited for a lot more people to learn about the ways in which you know, alumni have contributed um, and have not just at Yale, but way beyond Yale and and where everything is today and how we can continue to really play a key role, I think, in moving um, our community and other other marginalized communities forward. Great. Thank you so much, Dini. And moving on to my next question, kind of going on with this idea of just letting our homecoming listeners get to know you and your childhoods a little better. Um, What was it like being an Asian slash Asian American growing up in your respective hometowns? And were you always aware of this identity? And in what ways were you thinking about your race and your identity growing up? Yeah, um, I think that's a really good question. And I think given the fact that I grew up um, in two different countries, it actually I would say I would probably mark my identity awareness as like two different phases, like pre-US and post-US, um, just because I think the the context of how we understand our identity is very critical. Um, and so growing up, I, I think because Malaysia is multiracial and it's something we pride ourselves on, um, it was something very known to me. Um, no one was like hush-hush about it, um, you know, it was very clear that we celebrated Chinese New Year um, and that, you know, there were certain things that we did, like we eat pork, which, <laughs> you know, it's very Chinese. Um, but like 
Malays who are Muslims don't because it's not halal, you know? So I think from very early on, um, this idea of like being a different race and ethnicity was very clear, um, and often talked about. Um, and I would, you know, have like Indian friends or Sikh. I had a Sikh neighbor and a Muslim neighbor and, you know, we would all be talking and sharing our treats during different national religious holidays. Um, Malaysia is actually known for having the most public holidays in of any country in the world. <laughs> you can look that up um, because we actually acknowledge like every, almost every religion or major religions, um, like holiday, religious holiday um, throughout the year. So we like have an, a day off for Diwali. We have a day off for like Chinese New Year. We have a day off for like Ramadan. <laughs> um, actually have multiple days off for Ramadan because we are a Muslim country. Um, and so I think it was a really unique environment to grow up in. Um, not only multiracial, but, uh, multi-religious, multi-ethnic. And I would say multinational also because we would have people from all over the world coming to Malaysia to live, right? Um, granted, there was definitely a distinction in class. And so I don't want to kind of, I don't want to erase that. Um, I think I was just reading a thread the other day of, um, a former Yale actually, um, who is Singaporean and, um, and their thoughts on the term expat. Are you familiar with the term expat? Uh, expat? Yeah. 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 And so the term is actually used only for white folks who move to Asia, right? But, but everyone else who moves to Asia or Malaysia specifically, they don't get that term. So it's definitely like a marker of a certain class of immigrant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was definitely that class distinction that was quite apparent um, across races, but I was highly aware um, of my race and was fortunate, I would say, to be surrounded by a, a very broad variety of role models who looked like me, whether it was in church or whether it was in school. You know, I had teachers who looked like me. I saw people on TV that looked like me. Um, you know, and I, you know, I was watching Hong Kong dramas and all that. Um, and so I was very much immersed, like, you know, my friends and I, we were of different ethnicities and different religions, but never once was I made to feel less than because of that. Um, I might have received negative messaging around gender, but because, you know, Malaysia is a bit more conservative in that sense, but it, you know, it never really, um, was that way for like my race and ethnicity. Um, and I say there's a pre and post because I think when I came to the U.S. Um, at the age of 19, it changed um, pretty drastically. And I came here and all of a sudden I had this label Asian and international kind of slapped on me. Right. And they did that because I was an international student, A, and I came from the continent of Asia. So Asian international student was my new label. and it was odd and it was uncomfortable, but it wasn't, you know, life threatening in any way. Um, but it was definitely something I had to grapple with and really had to start learning about, you know, like what does it mean for me to show up in a space and for other people to say, uh, she's an international Asian student, like, you know, or just an international student. Then they see my face, which is quite East Asian presenting. Um, like, and so having to experience being having certain parts of me erased 
um, unintentionally or intentionally was quite jarring. Um, and I don't think at that time I knew how to name that. Uh, it was just something I felt, but I couldn't quite necessarily articulate. Um, and I understand now why I found the most comfort in hanging out with other Malaysian international students because they were going through the exact same thing I was and none of us knew how to say what exactly we were feeling. Um, but we felt most at home when we were with one another and we could just throw out a random reference, you know, in a, and we would all get it because we had the same like cultural context growing up. Um, but even then we had like some regional differences within Malaysia, but still it was like more than, you know, what we could share with anyone else um, who was quote unquote an Asian international student because it was such a large umbrella. Right. Um, and so I think from there I began to understand this umbrella term and, and, you know, obviously the, the power in it to say like, look at us, all these Asian international students and we were on campus like in a significant way. But at the same time, you know, some of the dangers of kind of melding all our identities together to become this one lumpy thing called Asian. Um, and I think from there, it led me to um, be involved with um, an like Asian American organization on campus. It was the only one we had, by the way. Uh, it was called the Asian American Association, AAA. Um, and it was there that I felt that I was better able to bridge kind of the the Asian and the American side of things um, where I, I could find a lot of people who look like me, but they didn't necessarily grow up outside of the U.S. And so we could teach one another um, about our own lived experiences in in a more familiar way, I guess. And, and I think our point of, of um, shared context was often food. And our love for food and our love for like trying one another's foods and just like learning about one another's cultures. Um, and so I, I found the Asian American Association to kind of be a home within within the larger university for me. I obviously had other groups of friends as well, um, but I felt like I could be the most relaxed within that that group and that context um, because I had less explaining to do um, and I stuck out a little less than I did when I was walking around campus um, and Miami University similar to all the other institutions I've worked at since are predominantly white institutions and so I think that's important for context as well um, so yeah I think my understanding of being Asian American initially um, I felt uncomfortable because I felt like the American part of the Asian American is not something I could claim because I initially understood it as very much something tied to citizenship, um, like a piece of paper. And I was like, no, I have a Malaysian passport, so I'm not Asian American. I'm Asian, but I'm not Asian American, but I'm friends with Asian Americans. Um, and I think that was true for me for most, for all of my undergraduate career, I would say. Um, and then you know, as I kind of begin to learn more about Asian American history, I think that was truly the turning point for me in understanding that the term came about um, as something created by Asian identifying folks living in the U.S. Um, as a political identity and not something that is biological or, you know, based on phenotype. Um, and I think that was when I think I really started committing myself to educating myself about Asian American history because A, my 
neither my undergraduate career or um, my grad my master's degree um, afforded me that education. Um, and I think that again sh- highlights the importance of an Asian American cultural center uh, because it's obviously not in our curriculum. And I know a lot of my friends who grew up in the U.S. also didn't have access to that in their K through 12 education. Um, and so I really had to commit myself to learning more about the history. And then I started to see myself as more of an Asian American because I understood how my politics aligned um, with with that broader community. And, you know, one can say that there are many politics, many types or different camps of politics within Asia America today. And I think it, it is complicated because of the continual migration. Um, but yeah, I think it evolved, you know, and, and I'm able to now be the director of an Asian American cultural center, even though I don't hold American citizenship solely because I understand the identity to be a political one and not just a biological one. So for me, um, I moved to the U.S. as an immigrant, um, but then I became a citizen um, years later, uh, I think when I was like 10 or 9. And so I was Asian my first nine years, but that really wasn't like an experience that I was like, I really remember that well, like that specific of an identity. Um, But, you know, after becoming a citizen and being Asian American, um, I started realizing more like how that identity shapes into my life, both in my home and also in school and outside uh, of my house. And I think for me, um, you know, I would say that my Asian tradition, you know, and I really looked at it more as like my my tradition more as being brown uh, more than being Asian uh, was, you know, at home, you know, my parents kept a lot of the traditions in the culture. So when I was at home, I was very Pakistani. I was very Brown. But when I left, you know, when I was outside of the house and when I was in school, I felt very assimilated to the communities I was a part of, you know, and my, my high school, you know, my elementary and high school experiences were I was in like the high honors courses and majority of the students in my class and the, the you know, were um, white identifying. And so for me, me and two other students who identified as Asian, Asian American, I, I, like, I remember it really well that there was just us three, but I never really looked at it as like, a oh, this is weird or this is off because the rest of my school was very um, diverse. But now that I think back about it, I was like, wait, but that, you know, my specific cohort um, of the honors courses that we were in, in the AP courses was, it was just me and two other people. And so it made me realize like it wasn't a big representation in that small cohort, but the school overall was very representative um, with regards to minoritized communities. Um, But all that to say, not so much for the Asian and Asian American community. Um, There was not many in my school. And I think Long Island is kind of unique that way in that um, each town you go to, it's very different in terms of the breakdown um, of demographic. Uh, where we had, I was in a, I remember because I was involved with a program uh, in, in high school, a peer support program, where we did a, a shadowing and we would actually go to another school, another town, and see what it's like to experience a day in the life of like um, a student. And we would shadow them. We'd be paired up and sit in class with them and, you know, see what it's like. And then they would also come to our school. And I remember one school, like I think it was our neighboring town, it was um, 
like very, uh, like very white. And so, you know, going to that school and realizing it for me, it was interesting because it wasn't that different because my classes were very white, but I remember the, the, my classmates who are also in this peer support program, they were like, wow, this was insane. Cause nobody, like there was like, there was rarely, like barely any people of color here. Um, and so when they came to our school and they were like, oh my gosh, like there are so many people, uh, you know, so much, uh, diversity in this school. I wish I was here and different things like that. So I was like, it was an interesting experience to see that actual comparison when you go to from one school and then have them come to you as well. And that's kind of made me really realize it. And another thing I think I should, I wanted to also mention is I think, um, one of the big things that really made me, um, you know, think about my identity being Asian American and also just being Brown and Pakistani was, um, I would say nine 11 mm-hmm. in that I was in sixth grade when, when it happened. And so, um, it was very apparent of like how the Brown community was looked at and treated and, and different things like that. And so for me, that was definitely an experience that it didn't just happen that immediate few months afterwards it was years afterwards even into college um where i realized like i was different and i was treated differently um because of my race because of my ethnicity because of my color of my skin and so it was a interesting experience uh, kind of going through that um so yeah for sure and um i i actually have a follow-up question for you shiraz you know, you, you sort of said you identified as both Asian and Pakistani American. Do you did you ever feel like those two were at conflict with one another? I never personally felt the conflict. Um, I, I think because we we didn't have such a big, at least from growing up, I didn't have a, a big presence of Asian American. And by that, I mean like the whole population of Asian and Asian Americans, but even specifically like Brown and um, East Asian and Southeast Asian, we didn't have a lot. So I never really got to feel that experience, uh, compare that experience or what have you. Um, I think for me, um, the, 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 the contrast happened more when I, I think it was just like subtle um, things that were said to me and I, I got to see and experience through social media and, and TV and things that kind of, and I could see why people have the struggle too of like why it's such a struggle for people to see Asian as a broader term, but then because of different things, they see Asian as East Asian or Southeast Asian, you know, and whenever I see my identity specifically, it's not even Pakistani or South Asian, it's just Indian. And so that kind of, um, you know, when people ask my, you know, you, you know, reflecting back on it, I just think when people ask about my identity or talk about my identity and they ask me a question, they say, wait, are you uh, Indian? Instead of asking, are you Asian? Are you South Asian? Are you Pakistani? Or what are you? Or what's your heritage? They just jump right to, are you Indian? Um, and so that definitely was what I was experiencing, what I noticed um, upon reflection. So now I want to transition into talking about race at Yale because I feel like both of you are very important agents and representatives of the Asian and Asian American communities at school and have been for several years now. And so I'd love to hear some of your thoughts, worries, and criticisms of Yale and the world we live in. 
So I know that Yale has ties to slavery and slaveholders. One of our current residential colleges, Grace Hopper College, was until 2017 named after John Calhoun, who was a slave owner, a slavery advocate, and a white supremacist. There was also the shooting of Stephanie Washington in April 2019 and the Halloween costume controversy of 2015 in which the then head of Silliman College said that students should be able to wear whatever they wanted for Halloween, even if it was offensive. So there has been this long history of racial tension at Yale, and I wasn't present when these above events happened. And the above is definitely very simplified. There are so many more events and situations that we could talk about. So feel free to explain any of these in further detail if you want to refer to them when answering the questions and definitely bring up others if you um, have any you want to refer to as well. So first question, do you think that we talk about race enough on Yale's campus? Do you feel like we're talking about race in a way that's productive and where could we improve? Um, yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think that it's one that I'm constantly thinking about as well. Um, not only because it's, you know, part of my role, but I think in general, it's critical to to the future of this country um, and the people in it to really think about how we talk about race. Um, and I think at Yale, we there's an earnest desire for the from a majority of folks from my perspective anyway to talk about it i think a lot of people just are afraid of seeing the wrong thing um and i'm not sure how much of it has to do also with this you know need to be perfect um or to just excel at everything as a yale student that you know when it comes to issues that are are topics that are really difficult for anyone um you know whether you're a nobel prize winner or not um i think talking about race is a very difficult subject and i think if we're not willing and able to come to the topic with um kind of the willingness to be wrong or to be um to say something that might not land perfectly with other people and if those coming to the conversation are not open to others saying something that might not land and not having grace to say like mm, that didn't you know like I'm not gonna cancel you because you said something wrong um, I think if we're not able to do that for one another I don't think that the conversations we're going to be able to have will be productive like they'll be productive to a certain point and then it kind of like stops right um, because I think nobody has all the answers and and I think the best way to move forward as we're in a productive way is to really create a space where we can all kind of like be messy a little bit. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Dini. And you said something that I feel really connected to. Um, I think it is really important that we give people and ourselves grace um, when we're talking about such complicated issues as for example, race and class and politics. And I think it's really easy to become angry when having these conversations, and rightfully so. But I think there is a difference between coming at these conversations with respect and coming into these conversations with ignorance. I think if you 
if you want to talk about these really complicated topics, but you have an open mind and have grace for yourself and are open to making mistakes, um, but you also take the time to be respectful and educate, try to educate yourself about these um, complicated issues like that. Like, that's okay. Like, there's nothing wrong with making mistakes, but as long as you come into it with sort of an open mind and with respect. Yeah. Yeah. And I really like that you say that you also normalize anger in these situations. I think it's important to acknowledge that people have a lot to be angry about, Um, you know, especially even with the recent, like, like, while we're in, you know, like lockdown mode, there are still black people getting shot. For no reason, like how incredibly infuriating is that? Um, and if people were like, if black people are not angry, then like, you know, <laughs> it's like, what? Like you can't blame them for being angry. And I think, you know, recognizing that these conversations, I mean, even conversations I have at home about race are very heated. Um, and so to embrace the heatedness, like the, the, the emotions that come with that, because it's some people's life at stake. Right. And so for us to come at it at a completely cerebral point of view is not right. I think that's where sometimes the disconnect happens. Right. We want to argue all day about philosophy and, you know, da 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 da. But it's at the end of the day, it's like people's lives. And so we have to come at it with emotion and feeling and empathy as well, as much as we want to arm ourselves with like the latest, you know, text on Foucault or whatever next revolutionary person you want to quote. Um, but, you know, I think that there, we also need to distinguish between the feelings of discomfort, right? Like when I'm having conversation with you, I'm feeling uncomfortable. I need to ask myself, why do I feel uncomfortable? Um, and not necessarily shy away from it just because I'm feeling uncomfortable. I think discomfort is actually a good thing. It means that we're learning and growing. Um, but there's a difference, obviously, if we're feeling endangered, like someone is about to stab you, then obviously, you know, step away from that conversation and come back to it another time. Like if you're about to, you know, throw down and, and punch one another. Um, so I think that we need to distinguish between that, right? I think oftentimes we don't. We often say, oh, I feel uncomfortable. So I'm just not, I don't feel welcomed and I'm going to step away. And I think that is probably an easier thing to do, but that's not how we're going to, you know, reach progress together as, as a society. Definitely. Yeah, I think it's really important to embrace that discomfort and come at these conversations with respect but also like you said like acknowledge that people have trauma and that these are their lives that are at stake in these everyday scenarios that are sort of becoming normalized so another question i wanted to ask um related to the previous one and shiraz or dini feel free to chime in do you think that the yale administration specifically makes an effort to discuss and prioritize things like racial, class, religious, gender, et cetera, diversity? Um, I think it, you know, again, just going based on these questions, just thinking of the subjectivity and um, what the, the, the breadth of discussion is, um, is something to just keep in mind. From what I see from my perspectives, um, I've noticed that it's definitely um, very proactive here in, in the sense of uh, the discussions and also the prioritization of these different um, facets. Uh, one great example that I really uh, enjoyed seeing here is um, 
the uh, safety net. Um, and I think that's a really great opportunity to really bridge a gap that is much needed for first-gen low-income and students who just uh, need a support. Um, and this specifically ties with regards to class, but then also ties into different other facets of people's identity. And um, I think those are kinds of things that I really have enjoyed seeing of, you know, if there's an idea, uh, how much support it can get and what um, what kind of efforts are made to continue um increasing and uh, uh, garnering that support. And, and so I think that's been really, really good to see. And I, I also think that the, the efforts um, in terms of, you know, the discussions that I have seen, I, I think the diversity has been the, the biggest one as a broadness. Um, you know, when you look into different facets of it, uh, if you're looking at race, if you're looking at class, I think it just depends on the different areas you're working with and different departments you're working with. Um, but overall, I think there's been opportunities for sure to have open dialogue, to bring in a facet of diversity, whether it's gender, whether it's class, um, into a subject that might not have been originally talking about it, uh, like if it's like religion or if it's, you know, or something like that. So I think that for me has been really good to see um, since I've been at Yale. Yeah, I would say to add on to that, I think given our roles, the administ the the administrators that we do work with at Yale are, are often talking about these, um, you know, these various areas of like diversity, inclusion, inclusion and equity, um, and they prioritize it as best as they can within the the current environment that is Yale, right? I think they're often like competing stakeholders um, and that's not something that we always have, um, like myself anyway, have um, always have like control over. Um, but the discussions and the commitment are definitely there, right? I think it's a matter of like how it gets um, prioritized and, and implemented. Um, but, you know, I, I would say that I'm always like inspired and encouraged by the conversations that I do have with with various colleagues at Yale um, across the university whether it's like in admissions or whether it's in athletics or whether you know we're thinking about like the residential colleges um, there are just so many brilliant minds and brilliant people who are just so committed um, and want to see Yale be the best that it can be right um, and I think even that includes the alumni um, that continue to just bring so much and give so much um, to to Yale even beyond their time at Yale. So I don't, yeah, I don't think there's any way to kind of like run away from discussing or prioritizing these things. It's a matter of like how and when they get implemented, right? Because I think when you think of your student experience at Yale, it's like four years, but for administration, we have to take a longer view of like five to 10 to maybe even 15 or 20 years. Um, and I think that's why sometimes it can seem like things aren't happening, um, but it's just because we have to take a longer view at, at how these things happen, that it, it might seem slow on the student end, um, but it actually is high on the priority list. So I think that's it's kind of like that glacier, it feels a bit glacial in, space, in, in like pace, um, but I, I know that it's like something that is a priority. And what about the cultural centers on campus? Like, 
how have you seen the Yale administration change the way that it's supporting these cultural centers? Um, I could just touch a little bit on this in that um, not just from my own time here at Yale for three years, but just knowing the history, um, especially the recent history before I came. Um, and I think one great uh, example could be adding my position in and of itself as an a- assistant director. Um, that position was created in 2016. And so having that, um, the additional uh uh, administrative support, but also the additional funding for our cultural centers um, was a change, I think, that Yale had made um, to, you know, f- and it allows us to do more support for such a broader um, sub-racial, aka ethnic communities that we are able to do now at the ACC and why we have um, 60 student organizations affiliated with the ACC, because we have the, we have a little bit more capacity to do so. Great. Yeah. I know that each of the four cultural centers has its own rich history of student activism and how they got started at Yale. And for some of them, they're linked, like their histories are linked. So we definitely encourage the listeners to do their own research into these histories. And this leads really nicely into my next question. So In what ways has the AACC collaborated with other cultural centers on campus and why do you feel like it's important to do so? So this kind of continues from what I was mentioning before in that. uh, A good question. I I appreciate the question in that. Um, With the creation of the assistant director positions, uh, it allowed for the cultural centers to have more capacity to put more uh, effort and um, have the, the, you know, the bandwidth to do initiatives like intercultural staff training, which had never, um, hadn't been done before, uh, at least to my knowledge, um, with the other four cultural centers to do intercultural first year mixer or a graduate professional crawl uh, and, and several like two or three culture center collaborative events. This um, was definitely something that I was really looking forward to when I first started, Um, you know, in terms of when I did my interview and hearing about what this position allows the cultural centers to do, Um, because from what I remember hearing, it was, um, it had a little bit more of a very decentralized kind of system where we functioned uh, independently. Uh, But having this, these positions created and having this more support allows us now to, you know, and I, I, I meet weekly with the other culture center assistant directors um, to talk about, A, just to talk about how we're all doing so that we can support one another, um, you know, and then B, how can we, what are some initiatives that we're doing that we can support? And, you know, and like we've, uh, Adrian, you know, this, uh, how we've emphasized, how do we engage with the other culture centers? But then how is there opportunities, is, is there opportunities to collaborate with one another too? And so that's been really, really good to see in terms of, the collaborative uh, events that we do with the other culture centers. Yeah, I think in addition to what Shiraz has already mentioned, um, you know, the peer liaison program is also one that in not just involves, it started with the first, with the four cultural centers at first, um, but then it grew to expand um, and include 
um, the Office of LGBTQ Resources, Chaplain's Office, and the Office of the International Students and Scholars. And I think, you know, recognizing that all these populations um, were, you know, historically underrepresented at Yale requires that they have an additional like support system as as first years coming into Yale uh, it can be rather overwhelming and then also with the first gen low income community initiative which was new um that also right creates another form of support and i think um and i think one that we're not like that we're still thinking or need to do better around i think is with the office of um students with disabilities right and like really thinking intersectionally in that way um and i think we continue to refine the ways in which we collaborate um across these um identity um and community centers um because you know we are not one thing at a time like i'm not just asian <laughs> i'm like an asian american woman first gen right like like we're all very multifaceted um individuals and our identities likely um cut across many of these different um, areas and so the importance of collaborating is because we want to be we want to acknowledge the fullness and the holistic um, identities that all of us bring into each space Um, and to collaborate is important because I don't want ever want any um, you know individuals to feel like oh when I come in I can only talk about my Asian stuff I can't talk about any other thing. (laughs) Yeah Dini I'm actually really glad that you brought up Um, these different places like the Office of LGBTQ Resources, the Chaplain's Office, OISS, um, because like you said, all of us are multifaceted people and we have a lot of different identity markers and, you know, um, the cultural centers don't always need to collaborate within within themselves. There are um, these other places on campus that are great opportunities to introduce new students and um, create events with. So yeah. And uh, my my last question for both of you is, where are you hoping to take the AACC in the future? Um, like, what are your next steps? What's your vision for the center? Um, I think given that our center is student-centered, I really hope to take it where the students um, want to take it uh, because, you know, I think something that I've learned um, being in the role and also just in general being in this field is that we need to be malleable to the to what the needs of the community are in a given moment, right? So I, I'm always turning to you and your peers um, to get a sense of like, what are the needs now? Um, and so I guess I hope to take it where the community needs it to be in the future? Um, I, I mean, I think that, um, you know, for me, it's it's an ongoing effort. So the future can be today, tomorrow, it can be next year. And for me, it's always been uh, continuing to bring new faces um, uh, and bring it, uh, you know, increase the knowledge of our community available that students can know that the ACC is for them, right? And so whether that is, you know, doing uh, virtual Bulldog Day events, or if it's uh, creating a new student organization that someone has and helping support that initiative for them, um, all that has been kind of efforts that I've seen to increase our um, presence 
uh, in students' lives to make this not only a home away from home, but even while they're at home right now for some, um, to be a community that we can provide um, scholarship, we can provide social engagement, we can provide cultural um, you know, uh, um, information and, and what have you uh, for our community. Amazing. Yeah. I know that at least for me, as of now, I'm still planning on returning and working at the AACC next year. And, you know, even now I'm, I have all these ideas of projects I want to do next year, just circul circulating in my head. So I'm just really excited to see what my peers do um, next year to support our community and collaborate with and support other communities on campus. And that was my last question for you, Dini and Shiraz. But before I end the episode, I wanted to do a round of rapid fire questions, which I always do at the end of every episode. So I'll just ask both of you guys um, several questions and I'll alternate and I'll start with Dini. So, Dean Yi, you mentioned on the AACC Instagram that you speak five languages. Which five languages do you speak? <laughs> um, obviously, English, Malay, um, and I speak three dialects of Chinese, which are Mandarin, Cantonese, and Hokkien. Nice. Shiraz, you are the king of Asian game nights, but what actually is your favorite board game? Go Moku. And Ding Yi, what is a city that you hope to visit? Oh, that's tough. Uh, hmm. Wow, this is bad. <laughs> I can't think of only one. <laughs> um, anywhere in Brazil. Shiraz, what's the most underrated place, in your opinion, in New Haven? Underrated? Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know the perspective because I don't know if it is underrated if students really go to it. But um, I, I guess I would say the green um, because what I see here in the summer, because I live here, it, it's just such an amazing uh, experience of seeing these, you know, festivals and, and, uh, and large gatherings. So I think that... I mean, just from what I've seen is underrated in the whole like, holistic sense of an academic and uh, calendar year. Dini, what is your favorite room in the AACC? Ooh, the Young Wing living room. Shiraz, same question. What's your favorite room in the AACC? The Savina Dahl conference room. And lastly, Dini, what is the best advice you've ever received? Mm, that's a tough one. Uh, life happens after you plan it. And Shiraz, same question again. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, I would say, oh man, uh, I guess for this is specific for students um, while you're here, and this is what I got when I was in undergrad. Um, in that you're going to get, you know, a great amount of experience from your academics. Um, let's say you get about 50% of your experience from your academics, but I'd say the other experience is going to come from, you know, 
your classmates that you get to know, living on campus, the student activities you're involved. And so really make the most of both of those experiences while you're in undergrad and graduate school. Thank you. Um, Great advice for any current and future students out there. And before we go, Dini and Shiraz, is there anything else that you want to add related to the AACC or not? You know, whatever's on your mind. Um, I would say that this this time that we're in, um, I think is illuminating the meaning of community in a new way um, and recognizing that it doesn't just stop because we're not all physically together. Um, and I hope that that we can cherish, right? Like this time apart will allow us to cherish the times and the moments that we are able to share in person. Um, and I'm hopeful that, you know, regardless of, of prior experiences that everyone will come and get plugged in to the AACC because it truly is what you want to make of it. And um, it's not about any one individual or person, but it's truly about like the community. Um, Yeah, I don't know when um, someone might be seeing this particular or listening to this particular podcast. So I'm going to try to think more like longer term in case this is like I say a date and then they listen to this afterwards. Um, But the best way I can usually put it is um, you sign up for our AACC newsletter. Uh, you can just Google Yale AACC and then you'll find our link pop up and um, just sign up for our, news- our, our newsletter and you'll see the upcoming events. Definitely. And I will also post the AACC website link on the homecoming social media so that the listeners can um, learn more about the AACC. And thank you so much, Dini and Shiraz, for coming on to Homecoming today. And also thank you to all of the Homecoming listeners out there. Remember to subscribe and follow Homecoming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and really wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for listening to this episode. And I'll see you on next week's episode in which I'll talk about myself and my life just so you all can get a better sense of who I am as your host. So thank you so much and I'll see you next week.